when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The UK became the first country in the world to approve a coronavirus vaccine this week in a triumph for science and the scientists who have played a major part in beating the virus. What a momentous journey and international effort it has been. Discovery by two scientists who originally lived in Turkey, development by a German biotech company, involvement of a massive US pharmaceutical giant, and then involvement of our own UK MHRA to bring home the goods. What a fantastic journey. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, I'll be digging into the approval of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which you heard welcomed there by the Deputy Chief Medical Officer Jonathan Van Tam. We'll be looking at the complicated logistics of rolling it out across the UK and what it means for the current COVID-19 restrictions. Joining me to explain is our health editor, Sarah Neville, and science editor, Clive Cookson. And later, I'll be speaking to Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, about whether his party can save the United Kingdom, his challenges with Nicola Sturgeon, why he's failing to dent the popularity of the Scottish nationalists, and whether he finds Boris Johnson an embarrassment. But before all of that, Sarah and Clive, welcome back, and let's crack into the main topic of the week. The world is in a race to get coronavirus vaccines out of labs and into arms. This week, the UK won that race when its medical regulator gave the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine the thumbs up. The trucks are already rolling full of medicines and the first jabs will take place next week. But there are still great challenges ahead. The vaccine has to be kept at minus 70 degrees until just before it's delivered. Plus, there are some big questions about how many doses the UK will receive this side of Christmas and who will get it, all of which pose some very difficult challenges for the government, as the Prime Minister Boris Johnson admitted to MPs this week. Mr Speaker, uh, I, I think it, at this stage it is very, very important that uh, people do not uh, get their hopes up too soon about the speed with which we'll be able to uh, roll out this vaccine. That's why I put so much emphasis, Mr Speaker, on the continuing importance of the tiering system uh, of mass uh, community testing at the same time as we go forward through these tough winter months. So Sarah, let's begin with the process of all this. How did the UK manage to approve the vaccine before the US and the EU? Was it fast working? Were there any corners cut? Well, Dr June Rain, who heads the UK regulator, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, was at pains to emphasise no corners were cut. She said that, I think, twice at least in the briefing she did in the rather euphoric hours after the MHRA became the first regulator in the world to approve a coronavirus vaccine. And she talked through in enormous detail what the process had been. And essentially, it involved 
the regulator here in the UK starting very early on reviewing the data. So by the middle of October, the agency had started looking at the data. They were getting it in tranches rather than, as would normally happen with an approval for a vaccine or a drug, getting the entire data file only when it's complete. What the agency here was receiving was each separate bit of the data from the different clinical trials. And those clinical trials, the three phases of a clinical trial, have been run in a sort of overlapping way. So it's been a more sort of concertina timetable. But certainly the message from Dr. Rain was, we've done it faster, but we've absolutely done it to the same high and rigorous standards as we always would. Well, Clive, there is obviously a danger that this rapid process could even undermine faith in the vaccine. And Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's America's supremo on medical matters, suggested it might on Thursday before later retracting his comments. And it sort of reminds you, you've got to be very careful what you say about this, because really the aim of everybody is to build faith in this vaccine and build faith in the process. That's right. I don't know why Dr. Fauci said that. As you say, he was quick to retract. I think the MHRA has been as rigorous as the other regulators, the European Medicines Agency and the FDA in the US. But it's almost seen this as a point of pride. And although it turns out that contrary to the claims of some ministers, Brexit was not the cause of this, it could have done this emergency procedure anyway, people in the MHRA were really determined to show how fast and nimble they could be. And at a Pfizer UK press briefing this week, executives from the company were paying tribute to MHRA while emphasising again and again and again that corners were not cut, as Sarah said. I think, as Clive said, this wasn't the result of Brexit that we did this so quickly, but there's no doubt that for two or three years now, ministers and the MHRA have regarded the notion that the agency here could move faster perhaps than other regulators as a potential real point of difference post-Brexit after we leave the sort of protective embrace of the European Medicines Agency. And I think they're very much seeing this as a bit of a sort of worked example, a calling card, if you like, for the rest of the world of how quickly they can get an approval. And the other thing, Seb, is that this is just the first emergency use authorization. They'll be pouring over more data as it comes in. And it's going to be very important to keep very good tabs on vaccinees as it's rolled out. And they've got a very elaborate green or yellow card reporting system so that if adverse effects are detected, and let me remind you that there are bound to be some adverse effects from vaccination, and there'll be reports of adverse effects which turn out to have nothing to do with the vaccine. So anti-vaxxers are almost bound to have stories to latch onto of people who've suffered some damage or illness after vaccination, which may or may not be due to the vaccine. 
Indeed. And this point that you raised, Sarah, about the nationalistic point, we have seen what's been described as vaccine nationalism this week. The success of this has been used to make political points. And of course, we heard that from the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, and he said this to LBC. Well, I I just reckon we've got the very best people in this country and we've obviously got the best medical regulators, much better than the French have, much better than the Belgians have, much better than the Americans have. That doesn't surprise me at all because we're a much better country than every single one of them. So Sarah, listening to what Mr Williamson said there, I thought it contrasted quite significantly with Jonathan Van Tam, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, as we heard at the beginning. He was saying this is an international success. And yes, Britain may have got there first, but other regulators are going to follow. And we shouldn't look just through the lens of one country succeeding against others. Yes, he really did go out of his way, didn't he? to emphasise the different nationalities which were involved in bringing this vaccine to fruition. And and I noticed that Boris Johnson at the same press conference very much embraced that. He absolutely did not take the opportunity to score nationalistic points at all. I felt the truth is we need all the vaccines we can get. There's no question of anybody here in the NHS or in the scientific or government community feeling that there's going to be a sort of nationalistic celebration of the AstraZeneca vaccine, for example, you know, if and when that's approved, because so much of the work for that was done here in the UK, the world is going to need as many vaccines as possible. Well, Clive, let's just mention those other vaccines now. We've obviously got the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine that has been approved, but all eyes are on the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine because of its cheapness and because of the fact it's much easier to get around. What's the kind of timetable for the MHRA approving that? And is there a chance that it could be delayed somewhat? Because they've had a couple of questions with some of their trials and the data associated. The next key event on the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is going to be next week when we're expecting the full details of the interim results that they released a couple of weeks ago. Those were the results that showed 70% overall efficacy, but 90% in a small subgroup who mysteriously perhaps received half dose and then the full dose a month later. And let's remember that these are all two-dose vaccinations. That will clear up, I hope, a lot of the uncertainties that were cast on it. Meanwhile, the MHRA will be going on with the rolling review, which Sarah talked about earlier. I think that the hiccups probably were not to do with the vaccine. I don't think it's causing side effects, but it might. I think it's unlikely to show the same 95% efficacy as the Pfizer-BioNTech or the Moderna vaccine. But if it can be somewhere between 70 and 90%, with the advantages of its being much cheaper and storable indefinitely at fridge temperature, that could make it very useful here while the others are in short supply and crucial worldwide. And Sarah, what are your views on when we could start to see the AstraZeneca vaccine approved? Because one thing we've seen this week is that the Pfizer vaccine is only going to come in limited doses to the UK before Christmas. Yes, absolutely. Well, I thought perhaps we got one little clue potentially at the news briefing that the MHRA did on Wednesday, where one of those on the panel talked about everybody working all through Christmas 
to seek to get approvals on the other vaccines. So perhaps that was a little hint that we are not to expect other approvals this side of Christmas, although of course one never knows. There is unquestionably an issue around the fact that right now we only have 800,000 guaranteed doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine coming to the UK before Christmas. Now that may yet be stepped up and certainly will be, I think, very substantially in the new year. But perhaps there's a bit of sort of expectations management for the government. We saw Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock very much trying to tamp down this narrative that, you know, as Boris Johnson put it in another context a few weeks ago, the scientific cavalry have arrived. Everybody can stop social distancing and throw away their masks. The truth is, this vaccine program, although it's going to historically, we believe, start on Tuesday, it's not really going to get into its stride until significantly into the new year. And that's substantially because we don't yet have anything other than this sort of initial, quite small in population terms, tranche of doses. Because, Clive, the government, again, when they announced the order for vaccination, they were going to begin with NHS staff. But because of that limited supply and, of course, logistical challenges of getting the vaccine around the country, there's been a bit of a rethink. And in fact, they may focus on care homes after all as the first thing. What's going on there? I think they're going to see how it works out next week. I don't think even they are quite sure there are problems. One is that it arrives in deep, deep frozen boxes of a thousand. And it's quite difficult to split them up and keep them frozen and send them out and about. I think we'll probably see a mixture of doses going out to care homes, maybe the larger ones that can manage it, and going to the NHS to give to perhaps the most vulnerable health workers or the ones most exposed to COVID patients. And Sarah, where does this go into the general approach for the UK tackling coronavirus here because the new tiering system came in this week with lots of the country in the tier two restrictions and tier three restrictions, which means that there's not much indoor socialising or normal life going on in terms of pubs and restaurants. How much of the population needs to be vaccinated before you can start to roll back some of those restrictions. There's been a lot of talk about March and April for ministers this week as things getting back to normal, but what's the sort of trajectory to get there? The officials have been very careful not to give a firm proportion of how much of the population would need to be vaccinated to get this famous and rather discredited phraseology of herd immunity. But I have heard expert assessments that we probably need in the order of 60-70% to have had the vaccine to really feel that transmission has been curbed sufficiently for us to get back to our normal everyday life. But of course, some of the measures that we've all been putting in place for the last sort of nine or 10 months may become semi-permanent, I think. And Jonathan Van Tam got into a little bit of hot water with the Prime Minister because he talked about perhaps hand hygiene and even masks becoming quite a permanent feature of life in the UK, just as it has done in the Far East following the SARS outbreak, particularly in 2003. And I don't think it was particularly what Mr Johnson wanted to hear from him, but he stood his ground, you know, and made clear that Perhaps the way we all look at our risk of infection, even just from regular winter influenza, which can also kill, that this may permanently change the way we all behave. 
Well, Clive, what's your view on this? So Sarah's talking about 60, 70%. Is that going to be March or April time? Will there be a gentle ease off of the rules or does it really have to wait till you've hit that point and then there's a big en masse ending of the social restrictions, even if masks and some things do continue for some time? Well, there's a continuum and we must remember that we don't know the crucial answer to the crucial question, how much will these vaccines stop the transmission of coronavirus as well as stopping people getting ill. Now, we've had very good evidence that it's very effective at preventing disease. I think if it prevents disease, it's bound to reduce transmission by quite a lot, but it may not prevent transmission enough to introduce that herd immunity Sarah was talking about very quickly. So I would say what's going to happen is that by spring, we'll definitely have a lot of the more vulnerable elderly people vaccinated. So the number of cases and that got death will have gone down enormously. And then it turns out that this COVID-19 disease is really quite seasonal. So as happened this summer, there'll be fewer cases because people are out and about. The virus doesn't like warmth outside the body. So I think we'll have a good summer. Then the question will be, and I have no idea of the answer, will we have some sort of resurgence next autumn? I hope not. And finally, Sarah, of course, throughout all this is the concern about anti-vaxxers and how much of a problem do you think this is going to be? I think looking at the polling, the UK is in a better position than a lot of other countries, but there is concern that there needs to be a big drive to convince people to take this vaccine. And we've heard the idea of Matt Hancock, Boris Johnson, Marcus Rashford, even the Queen taking the vaccine live on TV to try and combat that. Yes, I saw in the US that three former presidents, Bush, Clinton and Obama, have all offered to take it live on TV. And I also saw some slightly mischievous Twitter suggestions that Jonathan Van Tam should vaccinate his elderly mother live on television. He's already brought his mum into the discourse before in terms of mentioning that he is going to be very strongly urging her to get it. So I think absolutely we'll be seeing some influencers being brought forward to show that they're happy to be vaccinated. A slightly more sort of existential point perhaps is that the last few months have led to diminishing trust in government, a feeling that in many ways Perhaps there are aspects of this pandemic that haven't been handled at all well here. So you could argue the bond of trust that Britons may normally have with their government and institutions has been somewhat frayed in the past few months. It's certainly something that the government is very well aware is going to be crucial to getting as many of the population here vaccinated as need to be to bring this pandemic finally, we hope, to a close. Clive and Sarah, thank you. The Scottish Conservatives are the official opposition to Nicola Sturgeon's ruling Scottish National Party, yet they are pulling less than half of its vote. Under the party's former leader, Ruth Davidson, the Scottish Tories became the flag bearers for the Union with England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, but they have seen their fortunes wane since she stood back and since Brexit. Douglas Ross is the man who is hoping to change that. He was elected Scottish Tory leader earlier this year and has set about taking a more combative approach to the union, which may be a good thing too, given that support for independence has reached sustained and record highs in recent opinion polls. 
Douglas, welcome to the pod. Delighted to join you. So just to begin for our listeners, could you explain to us why you are a Scottish Tory? What brought you into frontline politics? Well, it's now 13 years since I was first elected as a Scottish Conservative councillor from my home area here in Murray. I, I served 10 years in the local authority. I was elected to Holyrood as an MSP and then had the opportunity to stand for, again, my home constituency in the SNAP election in 2017. I beat the then SNP Westminster leader, Angus Robertson, and I held on to my seat in 2019. And what attracted me to the Scottish Conservatives was a, a party that believes in decision making at a more local level, ensuring people have as much of their own money to spend as possible and, and smaller government. These are the things I believed in back then and still believe in now. And obviously a lot has changed in that period, because I think when you first entered frontline politics there, the Scottish Tories were almost extinct after the 1997 election. They lost all their seats in Westminster. It's been a very long, arduous journey since that period. Have you ever felt that it was just simply not worth it and that the Scottish Tories, in fact, haven't got purchased in Scotland anymore? No, not at all. And it's very clear that the Scottish Conservatives are the only alternative to the SNP in Scotland now. That's been clear at the 2016 election when, as you said, Ruth Davidson led us to uh, the largest number of Scottish Conservative MSPs to official opposition to the 2017 election when we went up to 13 MPs, the 2019 election when we're still the second biggest party in terms of MPs representing Scottish constituencies. But did I ever feel it wasn't worth it? I was always told if I wanted to be an MP, I couldn't be an MP for Murray. Murray wouldn't vote Tory. It had been uh, SNP for 30 odd years. But I was always determined that if I was to get on the green benches to be a member of parliament, I wanted to do it in my home area where I was born, brought up, went to school and worked. Now, you said the Scottish Conservatives are second in Scotland in terms of the number of MPs. That's true. But the SNP have 47 and you have six. That is a huge gap there. And when you look at the opinion polls, the SNP are on 55% at the moment and you're on 22%. So you may be second, but it's a very distant second there. You've been leader for a good couple of months now. Why have you failed to make much of a dent into their polling lead? Well, I do think a lot of politics at the moment is focused on the COVID response and people aren't automatically thinking about policies and pitches from the various parties. I think when we get into the new year and the outstanding news that the United Kingdom is the first country anywhere in the world to have an approved vaccine for COVID and, and we return to a form of normality, then we'll start to look at individual parties policy platforms and indeed the Scottish government's record. And I think actually when people start to look at Nicola Sturgeon's record in government and what her party have done or in many cases have not done over the last 13 and a half years, we'll see a shift because education, for example, Nicola Sturgeon told the people of Scotland to judge her on her number one priority, which was going to be education. We've fallen down international rankings. Scotland was once a world leader for education. We've got 3,000 fewer teachers in Scotland than we had when the SNP came to power. There are many areas of education that young people have been let down with. But isn't this the paradox here? Because if you look at Nicola Sturgeon, you know, yes, you can criticise her record on education, on health, on the handling of coronavirus, yet none of this seems to dent her standing. And you're very much always arguing, look at the facts, look at the figures, look at the SNP's record for its 13 years in government. But based on the polls, no one seems to be taking any notice. People don't even seem to care about it. Well, I wouldn't say people don't care. People in Scotland really care about their children or their grandchildren's education. And that is something they're going to look at more closely, I believe, you know, when we get into the new year and we start the campaign 
proper. But there is a, a difficulty in, in Scotland to allow or have opposition voices be heard. Nicola Sturgeon is on the BBC for an hour every day. She gets to read out a pre-prepared statement that she has arranged with her team uh, and then answer questions from the media. Other opposition parties don't get that platform. And I think it is very difficult to really make a case. But of course, her very strong standing in Scotland predates the coronavirus press conference and predates the point at which she had that kind of platform. And even when the Scottish Tories had their bounce back under Ruth Davidson, why are the SNP so far ahead of everybody else? Do you think it's to do with the fact that the pro-union vote is split between you, the Scottish Labour Party and the Scottish Lib Dems, whereas they have all of the nationalist vote, which, as I mentioned, is well above 50% now? Uh, well, yes. I mean, there is a core nationalist support. I wouldn't say it's as high as the, the opinion polls saying for the core voters who will always vote SNP, they may not agree with everything the SNP have done. They may have very significant disagreements on policy areas, but they believe voting for the SNP is the only way they can get to their aim, which is to separate Scotland from the rest of the United Kingdom. And of course, the other parties, there is a divergence of views in terms of policy and domestic agenda. And while the Scottish Conservatives are clearly the strongest pro-union party in Scotland, that vote does get spread amongst other unionist supporting parties. And that clearly benefits the SNP because they can get the bulk of the independent supporting voters to back them. But you must look at the Scottish Labour Party and think they need to pull their act together. And I've spoken to ministers in Westminster who say that the Scottish Tories, yes, there's a big part of the electorate they speak to, but you can't save the UK union without the Scottish Labour Party doing better because there are some parts of Scotland, maybe older people, retired public sector workers, people who are a bit more left-leaning in their politics, who the Scottish Tories simply can't speak to. And the fact that Scottish Labour is in such a dire state under Richard Leonard at the moment means it makes your job harder in some way. Well, Scottish Labour are in a dire state. We saw a recent by-election for the council in Clickmanishire East, where the Scottish Conservative vote was up at 10%. The Labour vote was down 12%. That's an area that Labour were once fairly strong in. And it's clear that voters are shifting directly from Labour to the Conservatives because they can see us as the strongest opposition to the SNP. But yes, you know, the Labour Party has been on a downward trend for some time now. And it's not just UK Conservative government ministers that are saying that it's senior people within the Labour Party at both a Scottish and a UK level. But my issue is, is not trying to deal with the Labour Party. It's up to them to stand up and fight for what they believe in. But I also don't believe that the Conservative Party should be a party that these former Labour supporters can't look to. And I've already announced a range of policies that I want to allow people to look at us afresh, look at the Scottish Conservatives again, see us as the strongest defenders of Scotland's place in the United Kingdom, but also a party that meets their values as well. And they can look to us at this next election to stop the SNP while backing some of our progressive policies to take Scotland forward. Now, let's talk about the elephant in the room here, which is you're there to fight for the union. But in some ways, your biggest challenge is Boris Johnson. Do you find him an embarrassment? No. The fact is, Boris Johnson keeps making comments that are undermining what you're trying to do in Scotland. Remember those leaked comments from a meeting with Tory MPs when he said that devolution had been wrong. And that must be very challenging for you. How do you deal with that when you've got a national party leader who seems to be seeing the opposite of what needs to happen to save the UK? 
the Prime Minister is a strong defender of the Union. He created the title Minister for the Union because he understands how vital it is for his premiership, his government in this country, that Scotland remains a strong, integral part of the United Kingdom, as it has done for the last 300 years. And on the comments on devolution, he's been very clear that as someone who ran for Mayor of London, was elected and re-elected, he fully backs devolution. But like many of us in Scotland, he's got real concerns about how the SNP have used being in government in a devolved parliament in Holyrood for the last 13 and a half years to push their own separatist agenda rather than actually delivering on education, on our health service, on law and order, on the economy. Isn't there a slight ideological problem, though, because you start from a position of saying the Scottish Parliament is a good thing, devolution is a good thing, bringing more powers close to the people of Scotland. Mr Johnson and many other people in Westminster start from a different place, which is to say, well, actually, we wish devolution had never happened and the whole thing's been a disaster. And when you look at the way you see that, it leads you to very different places. It can give an impression that people like the Prime Minister just don't care that much about Scotland's place in the Union. No, I mean, the Prime Minister cares passionately about Scotland's place in the Union. That's why his government continue to go to great efforts to show what Scotland gets from being part of the United Kingdom and what Scotland gives to the rest of the United Kingdom. It's the fact that our family of four nations come together at times of crisis like we're in just now with COVID-19, that we can see how the strength of the UK protects a million jobs through the furlough scheme. 80,000 Scottish businesses eh, have been protected through loans that have been authorised by the UK government. Hospitality businesses in Shetland are getting the same VAT reduction as those in South Cornwall. This is all how the UK and the family of four nations can come together and help each other through these difficult times. Now, can I ask you about the logic of sort of differentiation? And we saw this under your predecessor, Ruth Davidson, as well, because it's natural that you are the Scottish Conservative Party. You're not just a wing of the National Conservative Party. There are going to be issues where you need to differentiate yourself from the Westminster line. But does not that also play into the SNP's narrative here, saying that even if the Scottish Tories are saying Boris is no good and you want to distance themselves, then shouldn't you pursue that to its logical conclusion? No, I mean, I think people in Scotland are wise enough to understand that uh, the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party will work with the Prime Minister where it's in the best interests of the people of Scotland and stand up if he disagrees with them. I disagreed with the Prime Minister over Dominic Cummings. I resigned my position as a minister in his government. But that doesn't mean I disagree with everything the Prime Minister does. But where I do disagree, I'll stand up and say that. And where I believe the, the UK government are correct, I'll work with them to deliver for Scotland. And that's a stark contrast from the SNP, where their own constitution says you are not allowed as an elected representative to take a different view from the leadership. I don't think that's healthy. And I also don't think it's healthy that we have a Scottish government in the SNP who continually want to pick fights with Westminster for political gain rather than to benefit the people they're supposed to represent. Well, you're obviously painting a very optimistic view of that there, but you did mention Dominic Cummings and what, why you resigned over that. And obviously Mr Cummings has now left Downing Street. What was your reason for quitting over that? And do you think he should have been sacked at the time instead of walking out last month? I made it very clear at the time, you know, I, I didn't you know, rush into that decision. I love my job in the Scotland office. I felt I was doing some good work there with the Scottish Secretary. It was a, a real privilege. But I also looked at the circumstances surrounding what Dominic Cummings had done and how my constituents and people across the country had followed the 
guidance from the government to the letter of the law. And very few, if any of them, felt they would be allowed to travel as far as Dominic Cummings had done to look after his family or indeed to go to check his eyesight. And I couldn't personally defend his actions. And therefore, as a member of the government, I had to either say nothing at all or resign. And I decided to resign to be able to articulate my concerns and those of many people I represent. Now, we're recording this on Friday when Brexit is still ongoing. There's no white smoke yet on whether there's going to be a deal or not. There's still a very real prospect of no deal with the EU. Wouldn't that be disastrous for the union? Well, you see no white smoke. What I have seen during these talks is an awful lot of food orders. So someone's doing uh, a lot of good business <laughs> <laughs> down there. I've seen sandwiches and pizzas. Uh, so they're being well fed during these negotiations. But what I would say in all seriousness, you know, there's clearly a, a sustained effort now in the final few days to get a deal. And it would be good for the UK. It's clearly been the aim of this government and the Prime Minister's aim throughout is to get a deal with the European Union. It's in the interests of both sides. And the fact that we have seen an acceleration of the talks and intensifying round of negotiations in the last few days means that everything is still to play for and we can get this deal. But we might not get a deal. And obviously, if we have no deal, the SNP will use this as A, to say that Boris Johnson has failed. And B, it's obviously going to create trading and economic disruption as the Office for Budget Responsibility set out in the spending review there. I understand that fishing is very important for your pitch, taking back control of British waters and boosting the Scottish fishing industry. But doesn't it also have more damaging outcomes if there isn't a trade deal? Well, let's be clear, you know, I want a deal and I think all the effort from the UK government side is to get a deal. But let's also be realistic. If we get a deal, the SNP will say it's not good enough. And if we don't get a deal, they'll say it's not good enough. The SNP will use this to further their grievance agenda with the UK government. I think what we should just be focusing on in these last few days is getting a deal which delivers for what the people across the United Kingdom it said in a referendum, which was to leave the European Union. But let's do it in an orderly way where we continue to work with friends and colleagues in the European Union and also look at the opportunities as we can trade around the globe in a successful way. And of course, it wouldn't be a discussion about Scottish politics without asking about another independence referendum. Very briefly, if the SNP win a thumping majority, as the polls suggest, in next May's Scottish Parliament elections, does it eventually become inevitable that second vote will happen? The poll at this time, ahead of the 2016 election to the Scottish Parliament, said the SNP were going to maintain their majority and the Scottish Conservatives would stay in third place. The Scottish Conservatives more than doubled their number of MSPs. So I'm not looking at hypotheticals. I'm looking at the next six months, how we deliver a positive vision for Scotland. And that's in stark contrast to an SNP government who are tired after 13 and a half years, but are still dominating all their politics, even during a global pandemic, on trying to separate Scotland from the rest of the UK. I think we can do so much better than that that in Scotland. And that's a fight I'm going to be taking to people across the country in the run-up to May next year. But Douglas, thank you for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes when they're released. You could also leave us a positive rating or even a nice review if you're so inclined. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda and Josh DeLamere. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Amy Keane. Until next time, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.